Yeah, you want to talk about unseen hours. Those are the guys. Those are the guys that have to prepare like a starter. The game could come down to a backup quarterback or a backup receiver, but they also may never play a single snap that day. Being extraordinary is having a relentless commitment during the unseen hours to work towards mastery of your craft and focus on the fundamentals. Being extraordinary is about doing the little things right every single day. In today's episode, I strap on a helmet and shoulder pads and hit the gridiron with former NFL player Eric Wood. Eric is a former starting center for the Buffalo Bills, a two-time Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee, and a consistent pro bowler. He was selected in the first round of the 2009 NFL Draft by the Buffalo Bills out of the University of Louisville, which was the only school that offered him a scholarship. Eric was instrumental in helping the Bills in their playoff drought in 2017. He is proud to have played his entire nine-season NFL career with the Bills before an unexpected spinal injury ultimately ended his on-field career in 2018. With much left to offer the sport, Eric stayed involved in football and is currently a commentator for the Buffalo Bills radio network. He is also the author of the outstanding new book, Tackle What's Next, and the host of the What's Next podcast. I've been a fan of his from afar for years, and we were formally introduced several months ago by two mutual friends, David Nurse and Jordan Montgomery. Here is my conversation with the very thoughtful Eric Wood. Eric, what do you think of when you hear the term or the phrase unseen hours? That's a great question and a concept that I absolutely love. And, and this is something I often talk about because when I was an NFL football player, everybody just thought, hey, your, your work is three hours on Sunday. They thought the coaches just coach for three hours on Sundays. People often think preachers are way overpaid because on Sundays they do two services, maybe a Saturday service as well. There's so many unseen hours with anybody that's finding true success in life or any high performer is going to have so many unseen hours. And those might have been the long journey to where they are now. It might have been the years that Nick Saban was making 40 grand a year as opposed to now making 15 million a year. There's so many unseen hours that are away from the spotlight. And for me, the unseen hours are what separates others. And it's the amount of unseen hours that you're willing to put in that sacrifice and dedication that can take you to high levels. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and I've been so excited to talk with you because I, I think you can offer a very unique perspective on the unseen hours in two different ways. One, as you just teed up perfectly, was your time as an actual NFL player, you know, the best in the world at your craft. But then you've moved on to a new chapter in your life in broadcasting and, and influencing and the other things that you have going on. And there's obviously unseen hours there as well. Let's talk about your time as a football player first. And you mentioned that most of us are only privy to seeing what you do on a Sunday afternoon. And, and even some folks probably realize, yeah, I'm sure they practice during the week. So, you know, he's he's got to practice a couple hours a day, Monday through Saturday. But there's still so many more unseen hours above and beyond that. Let's start to unpack that and, and shed the light on those hours. Yeah, when I had Dabo Sweeney on my podcast, he said that 97% of football is preparation. 97% of it is unseen. And even throughout a football game, I'm essentially only on the field as an offensive lineman half the game, six seconds per play, and the, the play clock is 40. We don't use all of it every time, but there's so much time that we are not being judged on our actual six-second plays, those 55 to 70 plays that we have each and every Sunday as an NFL football player. It is unseen hours that was likely people playing middle school and grade school football that prepared them for high school, which prepared them to college, which then allowed them to play at the highest, highest level and receive those paychecks that everyone thinks, man, you make so much money for a, for a three hour game on Sunday. But for an NFL football player, the off season is constant rehab, prehab, working out preparation for what will eventually be training camp and leading up to the season. And most of training camp becomes unseen. Now there are some crowds at practices nowadays, but you know, throughout just an NFL season, I essentially would never take a day off. I, I wish I could say I took a Sabbath during there. I'm a Christian. And, and my wife would tell you, 
my day off was Tuesday, which usually looked like maybe an 8 to 3 p.m. day, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., but most days throughout the week was 5.30 or 6 a.m. till 5.30 or 6 p.m., but your mind's never really off of it. There was times I'd come home from the stadium, and after you know me and my wife would have dinner, towards the end of my career, we had our first child, Grace, you know, spend some time with them. And then I get right back to the film because I was consumed by it, but I loved it. I loved those unseen hours. I loved uh, priding myself on being the most prepared player at all times. I'll say this, when I was coming out in the NFL draft, some of the experts were calling me the most prepared player in the draft. And at first I took that as an insult. You know, I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the fastest, I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the most athletic. I wasn't whatever i was the most prepared since then i've wore that like a badge of honor that hey maybe i didn't have all the physical gifts of some of these guys but i was willing to go the extra step when nobody's watching to prepare myself for those opportunities and so it the nfl is all about the unseen hours and i the the greatest example and i know everybody knows of him and a lot it's been talked about his sacrifice and dedication to the game is tom brady tom brady will go down as the greatest football player of all time. And he was a sixth round draft pick. And for good reason, he didn't have the college accolades. He didn't come out of college as this high profile athlete. His combine picture has become essentially a meme out there where people make fun of it. But what he has done from just literally sacrificing more than others, spending more time than others outside of that three-hour window on Sunday is what has separated him completely. You're a genius. That's the most outstanding answer I've ever heard. Gosh, there was so much gold there. I look forward to unpacking this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you took being labeled the most prepared uh, as an insult or a derogatory comment at the time, because I immediately wanted you to wear that as a badge of honor, because preparation is a controllable factor. And, you know, to some degree, height, weight, athleticism, those things are somewhat genetically predetermined. Now we'll get into some of the things we can do to manipulate that. But but to me, that was them saying, you made the most of what you have control over. And I think that's about the biggest compliment you can give anyone in any walk of life. So I'm, I'm glad you were able to reverse that and now wear that with, with some pride for sure. Yeah, I definitely do. And and as I looked at it and now transitioning and doing some speaking gigs and whatnot, like I was willing to do whatever it took to have the best combine performance I could have, the best rookie minicamp. All that I did um, off the field was to control exactly, control what I could control. There's so many elements in sports and business and life that you cannot control. We would often hear as athletes, all you could control is your effort and your attitude. We would hear that constantly. I would add that you could also know your assignment on every play. You could be completely prepared on what the defense has done prior. If I'm an offensive lineman, I can watch every snap of film from that season, understand what that defensive coordinator is likely going to do. There are other things that you could control as well. All right, so let's dive in, and, and just for simplicity's sake, let's break it into two parts of the year. You've got the offseason, and you've got the in-season, and you can certainly talk about training camp as being a part of that. Walk us through a typical day from start to finish during the offseason, where you're not necessarily under the close monitoring of the organization and the coaching staff. You're kind of left to your own to do what you need to do to show up as the best version of yourself. So what would a typical day look like in the spring, a month or two after the season finished? So I'll start by saying this. I asked somebody early on who was a veteran on our team. I said, what causes people to have that sophomore slump? What causes these people to kind of fizzle out too early in their career based upon their talent level or what they had shown early in their career? And they told me, people forget what got them there. People forget how hard they worked in college when they were forced to show up for workouts every day in the off season. And so I made it a point for me, I would go back. I lived in Louisville, Kentucky. I didn't spend the off seasons in Buffalo unless we were doing team activities up there. So I would go back and train with the college guys, hop right back in the workout groups with those guys. Cause that's what got me to the NFL. I also wasn't a guy who liked to take much time off. I always, I always feel like it's easier to stay ready than get ready like allowing myself to get way out of shape. That's just not 
something that I was comfortable with. And although I knew the NFL season was not getting bumped up, there was no chance of playing a surprise game. I also never wanted to get way out of shape and then have to build way back into it. And so I would start working out, although maybe not quite as hard as I would ramp it up to before training camp, I would start working out right away and kind of depending on injuries and how your body's truly feeling would be how intense those are, but I would hop right in. And so a normal day in the off season when I'm at home in Louisville, Kentucky would be some type of rehab. You, the injury rate in the NFL is 100%. Whether you could play through it or not, that's determined by how big the injury is, but the injury rate's 100%. So some type of rehab, flexibility, and then prehab in a number of cases, and then maybe an hour or so workout, and then it's your recovery. It's amazing how uncomfortable I am sitting on the couch now that I'm out of the NFL. But when I was playing, I was recovering. I was recovering from something. I don't give myself that grace very often now. And so uh, it might be hanging out and watching a movie that night, but that is recovering. That's that's me relaxing my body for the following day. I think it's brilliant. I'm glad you were able to, to frame that. And we will dive into some of the the lifestyle tweaks that you've had to make from being an active player to being someone that's not playing, you know, uh, uh, currently. Um, did you have a coach or a trainer or someone that was pushing you through workouts is one question. And then another is, I mean, you're, you're a good sized gentleman. So I, I know the nutrition plays a role and I'm sure you have to be consuming or did when you were playing a certain number of calories to maintain the type of body weight that you need to be an effective offensive lineman. So talk to me about the nutrition as well as if you had coaches and trainers or other people helping you during your off season workouts. Yeah, I would always have a coach or a trainer helping me at all times, whether it was the rehab or workouts for me, a great coach will take you further than you will naturally go yourself. And I, I pride myself on being a very driven person, but when someone's in your ear, someone you respect, Oftentimes, someone who's walked the walk themselves, for me, it's it's likely someone that that looks the part as well. It's easy for me to listen to those types of people. I would always work out with somebody in the offseason and, and generally not just a workout partner, a coach, someone who's been there, someone who has experience. And those people I would surround myself with, I would let them pour into me. I'd let them rip into me. I would let them tell me you need to do more. And, and to me, coaching has served me throughout my life whether it's been teachers when I was younger, but coaches have really shaped who I've become. And it, it was, I've been so blessed to be surrounded by so many great coaches, but to answer your question, I always worked out with somebody in the off season and allowed someone to push me. And then as far as nutrition goes, when I was playing, it took a ton of calories to be 310 pounds for me. I'm not naturally that big. I'm right. down to about 245, 250 now. And so I'm down 60 or 65 pounds. Some of that was hard work too, but I could I could have easily been 285 with, with a few weeks off. I broke my leg in half. My rookie year, I did the Joe Theismann leg break. And once I realized that I'm not naturally 310 pounds, I had weighed that week. I was closer to 315 than I was 310. I was bigger. I played guard my rookie year. So I thought, you know, you have to weigh a few extra pounds to play guard in the NFL. I broke my leg on a Sunday. Three weeks later, I got on a scale for the first time, and I was 278 pounds. And so that's when I realized, okay, this is going to be a constant chore to keep the weight on. And so it was a lot of it was eating around the clock, but you get better at it as you go, as you get older. You understand that extra virgin olive oil and MCT oil and protein shakes can sneak in, you know, a thousand or two thousand calories a day. You eat your four meals, have a couple snacks, and, and depending on the workload, maybe four to 6,500 calories a day. Okay, well, that's smart. Similarly, did you have a nutritionist or someone doing meal prep or or kind of helping you with that process, or was that something you you kind of got into on your own? Yeah, so in the off-season, I would do a lot of it myself. In-season, and this is this was a transformation when I first got into the league in 2009 to when uh, my last season in the NFL in 2017 and 20 in, in 2009, when I got there, our lunches, nutrition was not a priority in every NFL facility. So with the bills, we'd show up for lunch. This is pre-practice oftentimes. And we'd have chicken baked chicken fingers and Mac and cheese and comfort food. You could get a sandwich, maybe a salad, but but not very high-end nutrition at that point. By the end of my career, it was 
totally flipped over $10,000 a week in organic produce they were bringing in grass-fed meats cage-free the whole nine and so what I did before the season I got an RMR done a resting metabolic rate to figure out how much at rest I was burning per day then we would track heart rates throughout practice and workouts so we'd know about how many calories I was burning a day I got a food uh, sensitivity study done so to make sure I wasn't putting anything wrong in my body and I let them build out my meals and they would cook for me and prepare them all. It's amazing though. I weighed about the exact same. I wasn't much stronger that year, but just the inflammation cut down. I feel like my face and everything looked completely different. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, the inflammation is key. And I, I love that you just brought up before that you can add in some extra virgin olive oil or for some MCT oil or some other calorically dense foods but those that are very healthy for you, it, you didn't say right. I added, you know, a, a bag of Oreos or, or anything of that nature that you actually were very cognizant about putting very healthy stuff in your body. That's, that's great. Now, now let's transition into the actual playing season during the season where there's more structure to the actual week. Cause you're always ramping up to, to be at peak performance on a Sunday. What does a typical day during the season look like uh, both what you're doing on your own during the unseen hours, as well as your commitment to the team? Yeah. So our meetings would start around 8 AM, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the day starts at 8 AM. Often you have something to come in and rehab in the morning. I'm an early morning workout guy. I, I don't feel like I've woken up until I've broke a sweat. And maybe that's just years of conditioning that into practice where I still feel that to this day, but I would get in the facility 545, 6 AM, get a workout in. Then I would get my rehab in shower up, hit breakfast, and then hit meetings. And that put me in a routine every day to where when we hit meetings, I felt like I was sharp. I was ready to roll. I had my proper nutrition going and I could fire at that point. We would have about three hours of meetings, practice. Then we would have you know lunch, some treatment after practice, treatment on our bodies, then another set of meetings. And that next set of meetings, those can get long. And those are the monotonous ones where you're watching the practice that you just did and then you're watching the next opponent and that's where uh that's where you can really see the caffeine uptake uh hit in the nfl in those afternoon meetings when you're doing anything to just continue to to stay uh stay sharp and those would end maybe about five o'clock and so sometimes it's extra film with the offensive line maybe we grab the running backs the quarterbacks so we're all on the exact same page head home for the day and then oftentimes catch a little bit of film that night getting prepped for that next day i like it a lot all right so you started to unpack that a little bit i mean on one hand you're watching film of your own performance whether it's in practice or from a previous game but then you're also looking ahead and watching your opponents and watching what they're going to be able to do um and then because of the position specific nature of football I mean, you you have the head coach who's kind of like the conductor to the orchestra, but you have an offensive coordinator and then you have an offensive line coach. Uh, are these meetings also broken down where some things you're doing just with the offensive line, some things you're doing with the entire offense together, and then other things are done with the entire team? Is it layered that way? Yep, you're exactly right. And in the way you describe it is why there's so much accountability within an NFL team. And, and most teams have infrastructure similar, but that's why there's so much accountability because every step, every movement you make on a football field is on film. And especially during a game, if you mess something up, you're likely going to hear about it about four times the next day, the offensive line coach, the offensive coordinator, the head coach, and the GM will all catch you at some point throughout the day and say, man, I really thought your footwork was off on that one play. You could have thought you played the greatest game ever and they'll catch the smallest things, but that's how you become great. It's constantly perfecting your craft I would take notes of everything I ever messed up because I never wanted to repeat them if I ever caught them in this in my notebook of corrections if I ever caught something over and over I would know okay that's something either before practice after practice I need to constantly drill that so I can eliminate that and I'm going to mess up on a football field you know you're rarely ever going to play a perfect game in anything in life but if I cannot repeat mistakes then I have a much closer chance of playing a near perfect game Mm, absolutely. Gosh, I love that. Um, for context, and I don't know the answer to this, and I don't know that a lot of my listeners would as well. Um, how many offensive plays are in your playbook? Like how many, you know, from a, I don't think people understand the cerebral 
level of, of being able to do what you do? I mean, how many different plays do you have to memorize what you're supposed to do? And like you said, being so meticulous, even down to foot placement and hand placement to, to be able to do that at a high level. Going into training camp or coming out of training camp, I'll say we'll probably have a Rolodex of around 100 plays or so, oh you know, 50 gosh. run, 50 pass. Those can all be distorted so many different ways. Now, many of them are concepts. And so if you understand the concept, if they change a little deal, then you know your responsibility based upon this concept. But but and then heading into each individual game, we might only use 20 or 25 runs or passes. And then you'll hone in on how we attack each individual defense with this set of plays. But you have to understand all the concepts because you may be sitting there at halftime and the offensive coordinator says, hey, I know this wasn't in the game, but you know, we ran it during training camp. We're going to put this back in for the second half because we need this play to attack the defense here in the second half. Oh, yeah. You also said something earlier that reminded me of the fact of, and I'm a huge football fan. I love watching the game. And part of my attraction to it is how compartmentalized each person's role is in their specific duty on the field at any given moment. And, you know, you, you mentioned before that Tom Brady will go down in history, um, maybe not even as just the greatest quarterback of all time, but maybe the greatest football player. Right. But it's we can quickly forget that if he doesn't have guys like you blocking for him and protecting him, then he's not even in that conversation. And, and he's getting a lot of the credit on the work that others are doing. Um, talk to me about your ability to embrace that process and that very niche specific role that quite honestly doesn't get the headlines. You know, it's, it's usually the position specific players, the quarterback in particular that they're talking about on ESPN the next day. But if you don't do your job, that never happens. Was that easy for you to embrace that type of role? It was. And as offensive line, we pride ourselves on that. We pride by being the guys that if they never talk about us, that means we did a good day. Uh -huh. and we, we had a good day if the announcers never had to say, holding on number 70, the center, uh, which was me. If I never heard that throughout a game, that's great news for me. If they never say my name on the broadcast, that's likely great news for me. So we pride ourselves on that. The quarterbacks do, always do a great job of after the game. You know, I give credit to my offensive line, and that's all well and good. We do appreciate that. Sure. But it's fine. It's fine that we're, we're kind of – we're the protectors. We're the unsung heroes, and, and that's all well and good. Offensive linemen have gotten uh, – way higher paid recently because these yes. DNs and defensive tackles have gotten so athletic and yes. they can just completely wreck a game plan. So people have appreciated how much you need an offensive line, but it's funny. You talk about Tom Brady. If you had a team, if you had an offense, even of 11 Tom Brady's, you would have a terrible offense. Oh, Tom Brady himself at quarterback, <laughs> he played on some not so talented offenses in new England and made them look great. And yeah. so everybody has their individual roles. And man, when you watch an NFL team get off of a bus, man, there are some dudes that truly look the part and you think, wow, that dude's an NFL football player. And no offense to a bunch of my buddies, I may hear this, the kickers, the punters, the long snappers, they don't necessarily even look like an NFL football player, right. but the game's likely going to come down to them. Most NFL games are decided by one score or less. You miss a field goal, you miss an extra point. That has huge implications in the game. So you need everyone. And that's why it, all, it becomes the ultimate team sport. Uh, it certainly does. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's really funny. Talk to me about an actual practice. You know, I, now I played high school football and I can remember what my high school football practices consisted of. What does an NFL practice consist of as far as, you know, uh, what's the length and, and how much stuff? Is it just the offense working, just the defense? How much time are you going against each other? How much time is spent on special situations and, and the field goal unit and all that kind of stuff? So I'll say this, sports science and analytics has done a lot for the practice length in the NFL and in, in football in general. It used to be, hey, let's practice for three hours. Let's get after it. Let's grind it out. Now that they track steps and heart rate, you're straining the game and whether you're going to get a veteran rest day that week, all of that has done wonders to shorten NFL practices. And so generally a practice will be about two hours. And, you know, I say it's two hours. That's two hours of of seen time on film. There's unseen time beforehand. Afterwards, you constantly see receivers on the jugs machine, the machines that will throw them. You have offensive linemen working on their footwork. So most people are out there before that two-hour window or 
and or working after. But each and every practice will will have some type of special situation, whether you're working a two minute drill, a goal line situation, field goal, you're working some type of special situation each and every day. You're often split for maybe about half the practice between an offense and defense. And then you'll spend about half of it working plays against the defense. Now, if it's training camp, you're going to be going ones versus ones. The defense is running their plays. We have no idea what they're doing. Offense is running our plays. The offensive coordinator is going to call some in the huddle. As we get into the season, we'll have a show team, which when you get to the show team or the scout team, the guys that are going to give the look of the opposing defense in college, those guys stunk. I'll be honest. They were walk-ons. A lot of them were, I played at the university of Louisville. You know, it's like the, the kids from around town that walked onto the university of Louisville in the NFL, the scout team becomes often the best players that you went against in college or, or, or filling out this scout team. So they're pretty talented in the NFL, but they're going to run the defense that, you know, last week the Bills played the Ravens. They're going to run the Ravens defense, and we're going to run our plays. We generally have an idea what plays are coming against the the Ravens' looks. Oh, yeah, you're in the big leagues now. And, and how much during the actual season, considering how combative and violent the sport is, how much live contact are you doing during the actual week? Because on some level, you know, you, you got to stay sharp. Uh, and, and and you can't be too soft, but at the same time, you don't want to add too much pounding to the body and risk getting an injury earlier in the week. So what what did Tuesday, Wednesday practices look like? Is there decent amount of, of contact? There would be a little bit, especially up front. And, okay. and it kind of depends how old you are as well. You know, if yeah. you're an experienced player and you don't need that contact throughout the week, they'll generally, you know, pull you out of the, the more intense situations, the one-on-one -on -one pass rush where guys are just getting after each other, maybe a, a live two-minute drill. And when we say live in the NFL, live does not mean tackling. We are trying to keep everybody off the ground. If you're a, if you're a scout team player and you fall on the ground too much, they will cut you because oh. the more guys on the ground, you have higher chance of injury. You know, you could get your star player – you know, tripped up and, and now you lose someone for a season because a guy can't stay off the ground. So we're really working hands and feet and and we're not necessarily trying to bash each other. I will say this, though. I played in the longest playoff drought in all of professional sports at the time. We didn't make the playoffs for 17 years. Well, when you play on a pretty crappy football team, especially early in my career, everybody thinks that that week that they're going to get called up, that they're going to be a starter this week. And so our practices were pretty physical early on when we didn't have that many starters cemented in stone. This is so fascinating to me. You know, it's something else that I find really interesting about your sport, but also where I have just tremendous respect uh, is for the backups. You know, that, that it's one thing for you to have to know, you know, uh, the exact footwork and hand placement for the 20 plays you all might run on Sunday, but your backup has to know those things as well, even though there's a good chance he'll never actually step on the field. And because you said that it's the hundred percent injury rate, it's a matter of, 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 of when, not if talk to me about the mindset that someone needs to have to have that level of preparation to go through everything that you all go through during a week and then may not even be rewarded with playing a single snap on Sunday. Yeah. You want to talk about unseen hours. Those are the guys, those are the guys that have to prepare like a starter the game could come down to a backup quarterback or a backup receiver, but they also may never play a single snap that day. And so those guys have to prepare like they are a starter, put in all those hours, and then they can play such a vital role to the team. And it, it is difficult, though, for those guys to step in. And often, you know, you'll see a backup quarterback come in and they'll play like garbage in that first time out. And then maybe they have to play the following week and they play so much better. It's very difficult for a backup to come into a football game when everyone's kind of settled in, everyone's used to the pace of the game and the speed of the game, and then they get put right into the lineup. It's very tough to adjust to that speed. So, yes, it's a, it's a difficult place to be. Everyone says that the best position in all sports is the backup quarterback, and that is true if you do not have to go in the game. <laughs> yeah, and, and that acclimation to the – the, the increased physicality and the increased size and speed. Um, was that the toughest adjustment for you going from college to the NFL? I mean, you were, you were the most prepared player in the draft, but was it still an eye-opening experience to go from that level to literally the world's best? It was, and it was a jump to the preseason in the NFL and even to the regular season. I mean, everybody's good. Everyone's fast. Everyone's smart too. I mean, 
you're you're talking about very intelligent football players that are watching you on film every week to try and attack your weaknesses and not that they weren't doing it in college there just wasn't as many that were taking it as serious as these grown men professionals out there in my first nfl football game i had this is back when all first rounders held out of training camp so i had no choice but to hold out of training camp I signed with the Bills four days before our first preseason game. We're going to play in the Hall of Fame game. So we had the extra preseason game that year. I thought I was going up against Albert Hainsworth, who was wrecking the league. He was playing defensive tackle at the time for the Titans. Well, it didn't hit my brain that he's not going to play in this Hall of Fame game. They put a backup defensive end across from me, and I thought, I am going to crush this dude. And he made me look so silly on my first pass rush attempt. And it was truly a welcome to the NFL moment, like, okay, everybody's good. You got to take everyone serious. I had no idea what this dude was about to do because he really didn't even play defensive tackle. They were just playing, you know, the, the lower end of their roster there. And so I realized quick that everybody's good and I've got to get adapted quickly. You're so wise. If you don't go into a situation humble, uh, life will throw you some humbling moments for sure. I love that you can recognize that. So I think you've painted an unbelievably clear picture of, of what you did in the unseen hours during a very, very long and successful career. Now let's switch gears and talk about your new career. And we can look at some of the parallels between them as well as some of the new things you've learned. Um, you're, you're doing broadcasting for the Bills. Uh, you mentioned you do some speaking engagements and, and I know you do some things as, as an influencer. Uh, what else do you have going on or what makes up your, your full-time work now in addition to those things? Yeah, when I transitioned out of the NFL, I got into broadcasting. And part of the reason I got right into it was because I figured that if I didn't hop right in, then people would quickly forget about an offensive lineman that played his entire career in Western New York. And so I hopped right into broadcasting. I called games for Fox and CBS and ESPN. I worked for ESPN and ACC Network for two years and called Bill's games on the radio throughout that two years. So I was calling back-to-back games every single week. And I was told early on, and this advice was so great, that I needed to take the same approach that I took to football to broadcasting or else you will stink. If you don't prepare like you would for an NFL football game, and I'm not talking about the workouts and even the amount of film, but it's reading through pages and notes and articles on colleges that going into the week, you don't, you can't even name their head coach and quarterback. And by the end of it, you need to be an expert on these teams. You can't mess up their names. You need to know their backups in the whole nine yards. And so I took it very serious throughout that transition. And, you know, there was a lot of early mornings reading through college programs, you know, uh, game guides that they'd send you over. And then all the while staying prepped on who the bills were about to play. I'll say this TV is a little different animal than radio. You get a lot more time to kind of make your points. You can show everything. And with radio, I'm doing the bills each week. So I have one team completely covered already. Now I need to talk about the other team as well, but we're the bills radio broadcast. So we talk about the bills probably 80 to 90% of the time. And if, and if a play is really good for the bills, we're talking about why the bills were good, not why the other team was bad and vice versa. We'll talk about why the bills were bad. Maybe not necessarily the full extent of why the other team was good. Mm. What, what attracted you to broadcasting in the first place? I mean, when, when you retired, uh, I'm sure you could have done a variety of different things. You, you strike me as a, a very well-skilled and talented and incredibly articulate person. You could have gone into a million different things. What was it about broadcasting that you were attracted to? Was it, was it simply staying closely connected to the game or is there something about the actual craft that you really love? Well, I, one, I appreciate the kind words. And two, The way my career ended, I had a career-ending neck injury after the 2017 season. I had signed a contract extension before the year. I was in my ninth year. I played every single snap that season. We break the longest playoff drought in all the pro sports, which I meant. We make the playoffs that year. Everything is going so well. Sean McDermott, who's currently the head coach of the Bills, had just been hired that year. Brandon Bean, the GM, had come in under new ownership with the Pagoulas. Everything was going so well. And then I find out, after exit physicals while I'm in the delivery room for my son to be born, that my career is over. And that is all detailed in my new book. uh, What's next with Eric Wood or sorry, tackle what's next. My podcast is what's next with Eric Wood. The book is tackle what's next. And I was not ready to be away from football at the time. I also didn't want to put in the hours that the coaches put in with a newborn and this big transition that we have going in life now. And so I was not ready to be out of football 
when the injury was announced to the public, I had a number of national media members reach out and say, hey, you were always great to us. Anything we can ever do for you, let me know. And that's a lesson in even when, you know, I thought I was going to play five more years. If I would have waited till my very last year to start treating the media with respect and say, hey, I wanted to do what you do one day, it would have been too little too late. And so treat people with respect. You never know who's going to have your back when you're at a tough time in life. And so they reached out. I, I wasn't a broadcasting major. I wasn't a communications major. But for me, staying around the game, being able to talk about it, be able to use the skills that I've acquired, um, that was appealing to me. And, and I've loved being around the game still. If no one told you yet you're a genius and an artist, let me be the first. Oh, I bet so. And I bet the progress you've made just even in a short period of time is is astounding. I mean, do you ever go back and watch or listen to some of your earlier broadcasts when you were probably understandably rather raw at the craft. I mean, I, I I can't fathom the level of difficulty of doing that because, you know, when you're watching, a, just as a novice fan watching a broadcast, everybody makes it look so effortlessly. Like, it just looks like they're just there just having a normal conversation. But because I've got some really good friends at ESPN, like Jay Billis and Jay Williams, I know what goes in to making it look that effortlessly. Did Was it as hard as you thought it was going to be? Well, if you want to hear some not so great broadcasts, go go tune in to some really small, you know, college football games every week and you'll see. And that's not a knock on them. They no, of get, course they get to cut their teeth and then work their way up. I always um, I always felt bad for Jason Witten, who caught all that grief for how he performed on Monday Night Football. That was his first time ever broadcasting. Right. Of course. If I messed up on my first game I ever called for ESPN was. NC State versus East Carolina. If I messed up that game, it wasn't going to be a, a, a national story. Sure. Anything Witten did was so heavily scrutinized. Now, it was a great opportunity for him, but, you know, he went back to play, playing football the next year and all that. That being said, there is a lot that goes into, you know, you mentioned Jay and Jay, Billis and Williams, and, and I re, I've gotten to know those guys a little bit and respect what they do. But you asked if I could, if I go back and listen to them. It's funny when you do the radio broadcast, highlight videos cannot contain TV coverage. So if the Bills put out a highlight video, if NFL Network puts out a highlight video, they can't use CBS as announcers. So that becomes the radio broadcast. So whether I like it or not, if I'm watching Bill stuff or I'm watching NFL Network, generally I'll hear my voice back. And I do feel like I've gotten a lot better, but that's why I took both the gigs. One, I wanted to see if I like TV or radio better. I also don't really do anything halfway. And so for me, it was how do I get double the experience? I'm 32 years old at the time hopping into this industry. How do I get double the experience to try and catch some of these guys that started before me? Yeah, I mean, it's all about getting reps. I mean, that's where we're seeing these parallels from your previous career to your, your current career. Um, so it, it sounds like you prepare in a similar fashion. You know, you're instead of being in the weight room or being on the field or watching film, you're now studying the notes. You're getting to know everything you can about both teams that you're going to cover uh, to get ready for that. W what type of post-evaluation do you do? If you're not listening back or watching back to your exact broadcast, what, what are you doing to continue to make sure you're tweaking and improving other than just getting the reps in? That's a great question. So I mentioned earlier how I always want coaches in life and even transitioning out of football, I hired an executive coach to do weekly calls with just so I could continue getting coached on this next chapter of life. And so it was so foreign to me when I hopped into broadcasting that after the game, no one said anything. There was no grade, right? You know, there was no, no one reaching out. Now, if you have the same crew week to week, occasionally your producer or director will give you some advice. But I started just texting people that called the game with us. Hey, give me some, not the good, give me some things I did wrong throughout this. And I'll assume that I, I did everything else fine. I'll never forget that NC State game that I mentioned earlier, my very first one. I did, I was on the field. I was a field analyst. So kind of a three-man booth, but I'm on the field. Sure. So after the game, I'm interviewing Dave Dorn. And this is pre-COVID. I kind of put my arm around him. I, I knew him a little bit from being around the ACC, I put my arm around him and I'm doing the interview. I know he's excited about the game. And afterwards they said, Eric, you faced both of you to the camera. You have to face Dave and we'll include you in the shot if we want, but you got to stand next to him kind of perpendicular. I said, thank you for that. I had no idea that's how you conduct 
a post-game interview. And yeah. so it's been little things like that, but I, some of the ESPN execs were blown away. I, I found, you know, five email addresses of five of our top execs. And when I first got put in the actual booth, I said, Hey, I'm going to be calling the game this week. If you could watch the game, this is where I want to be. I want to be in the booth. I don't want to be on the sideline. Give me some pointers. It's funny. One of the guys texted me during the game, two series into the game to give me advice. I said, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And here's what he told me. He said, look, we know you did your research. We know you talked to the coaches and you researched all the stats. I just want to hear what you think about the game. Oh. I was like, okay, thank you. Because I was so excited to prove to everyone how much work I had put in. And I kind of neglected the fact that I got hired by ESPN because I'm a former football player and they want my perspective. Exactly. I mean, you have so much experience and expertise that most other people in the broadcasting world do not have. That's what can make you unique. And that's the extra value. And then the the extensive preparation that you do is just kind of a bonus on top of that to help help support it. Wow. Right. That's, that's incredible. So, well, well, one, you've got to be excited about like the the recent success of the Bills. I mean, you 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 got them to that point and then unfortunately had to retire. But now you're still a part of something that's incredibly exciting i mean with with the team that they have how, how does that feel it is it's a, it's a special area in western new york that buffalo area is so special and now that they have a winner it is it's just incredible up there they built a team i mean sean mcdermott and brandon bean are forever a case study on how you build a team how you handle a young quarterback that came out so heavily scrutinized out of college and now josh allen comes into the season as the betting favorite to win the mvp the bills are the betting favorite to win the super bowl but when they took over the bills everyone assumed in 2017 we were tanking based upon the guys we were getting rid of right. they weren't tanking According to them, they were bringing in guys that had their type of DNA, guys that would show up and work every day, guys that we never had to worry about their character. You build a foundation there, then you bring in some superstars, you draft correctly, and now you have a team built for long-term success, which they have now. They had a Von Miller this offseason, who hopefully is a missing piece, some other key free agents and draft picks, and it's fun to be around. It, it truly is. I bet so. Now, given your love for the city, your love for the organization and, and the blood, sweat and tears you've poured into that, um, is it challenging for you when appropriate to address any type of criticism or, or to say something about the organization? I mean, again, with my buddy Jay Billis, you know, it, sometimes when he's calling Duke games and, and he is as Duke as anyone I've ever met in my life. But if he needs to look at them through a critical lens, that is now his job and he has to be able to set his love and his biases to the side to do his job. Is that something that's challenging for you or, or is that pretty easy to do? I'll say this. When I was calling college games, these now this is pre-NIL. These yeah. kids aren't getting paid. Right. I know how much time they're putting in. And I would generally always try and look at what caused a bad play to happen as opposed to, you know, I'd give the defender credit and not the offensive lineman that got blown up in order to make it happen. I'm not trying to embarrass anyone on TV. I love that. Calling professionals games, you can be critical of them. Now, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. There's times where I'm getting ready to critique their center, Mitch Morse, and he's a buddy. And, of you course. know, whether he goes back and listens to the radio or not, it might become an article and someone may talk about it. And, and that's something you constantly have to be aware of. I, I believe at this point now, this being my fourth year doing media work with the Bills, guys know two things. One, I'm not unfair and I'm not out to get anybody. I don't want to get anybody cut. Yeah. And anything they tell me is completely off the record. It was funny. You know, you go back and you start hanging around your teammates, but now you're in the media. They'll say, well, is this on the record or off the record? I said, Brother, it is always off the record unless I know it's going to put you in an extremely positive life. If if I'm talking to a coach before a preseason game and I'm asking them about the young guys and they tell me who stinks and who's great, I'll say this guy said that this receiver has been doing so good and I'll never mention the other half of it. I love that. Yeah, that type of loyalty. Um will increase your credibility, uh, you know, with those guys. That, that's fantastic. So let's close by talking about the unseen hours and the things you've done with the writing the book, um, the talks that you give, and then you have an outstanding podcast. Love your podcast. And I know a lot of work goes into that as well. So talk to me about those three areas and some of the through lines between what you've already shared and maybe something that's a little bit different in how you approach those. 
Well, I appreciate that. And and we're going to do a podcast swap here. I'm just appearing on yours first. So I can't wait to get you on my podcast and pick your brain. And so in transitioning out, I've tried a bunch of things and it's okay to fail at things. It's okay to try things and say, Hey, I don't like them. And so for, for, you know, I've stuck with the broadcasting. I've stuck with the podcast. I wrote a book tackle what's next, which, which I mentioned before. And that was fueled from the lessons that I learned through playing, but mainly these podcast guests that I had on in these mentors in my life that really gave me lessons on how to transition into a more successful chapter than you were at previously. And so many guys come out of pro sports or come out of the military or say high school was the best days of my life man, I'd never want to live my life like that. I'd never do. And so this book can help you kind of take that next step in life, whether you're a professional athlete or not. It applies to everyone. It probably applies even more to non-professional athletes. And so uh, I've done all that. And and there's many unseen hours and all that. I mean, writing books, you know, it's there's so many hours that go before that book finally gets published but it's been fun. And and I always say I'm better busy than bored. I, I don't do well with idle time. I'm, I'm a guy that, you know, I, I've got to have a, you know, a benchmark out there, a goal out there. And so for me, it's been a fun next chapter of life, giving talks and using experience, whether it's to a, a group of kids or whether it's to a fortune 500 company, it's been a ton of fun to just tell my experiences, prepare for those and find new moments that give you butterflies, that make you nervous, that push you outside your comfort zone, because I'm not running out of an NFL tunnel again in pads. I'm I'm medically disqualified forever. There's no second guessing it. And so I'll never get that feeling again. But I'll tell you what, you walk up on a stage and you're really excited about your preparation, but you also know that, hey, you can fall on your face here. Of course. That's, that's a fun feeling to me. You smart. I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't. I can't fathom trying to recreate or mimic how electric it must have felt running out of some of those tunnels and some of those stadiums. Um, last question for you. Uh, so, how old are your children now? Let's talk a little bit about fatherhood for a couple minutes. Yeah, let's do it. Seven and four. Seven and four. Okay. So, and you said your son was born Second. right towards the end of your career. Yep. So your kids really don't know you as professional athlete. Like, I mean, of course they see you as through the lens of this is my dad. Can they even really conceptualize that my dad was one of the absolute best in the world at what he did and was adored by millions of people? Or is that just kind of almost like that's a different guy in a different life? It's funny because they'll see pictures of me when I was playing and they'll be like, daddy, that's you. And I'm like, yeah, I used to be a beast, you know? And my daughter was two and a half when my career ended. And literally my son's birthday is the day my career ended. And so my daughter has some, she has more kind of understanding of it than he does. But my son wore a Josh Allen Jersey to uh, his school pictures when he was three it was during COVID. My wife said, wear whatever you want. So he chose his Josh Allen Jersey. His teacher asked him, well, why didn't you wear your dad's Jersey? He said, he just looked at her kind of confused. Like, well, my dad's favorite player is Josh Allen too. Like it didn't even hit him that like he has my Jersey as well. Um, But, but honestly, that's fun and that's cool. And I hope they never feel any pressure from that. I'm the only professional athlete from my family. The chances of them ever being a professional athlete would be slim to none. There will without a doubt be pressures put on my son that I'll have to navigate through in life just because we live in Louisville, Kentucky. There's not that many professional athletes here. And so that being said, um, it's been a ton of fun kind of just allowing them to kind of step into what they, you know, they do the country club sports, but my little boy started playing flag football and he scored a touchdown last weekend and he was so excited about it. And I about cried. I was on the broadcast for the bills. My wife sent it to me. I watched it during the TV timeout and I'm like about crying, watching him run. And, 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 and really it was, I was so proud of him, not because he scored a touchdown, but because this is his first year doing any, any of that. A lot of the kids are more athletic and he, I think he's the youngest one out there. And so he had not done very good prior, but the fact that he stuck with it and got better, it just completely warmed my heart. Oh yeah. And it's not even the touchdown. It's the sheer joy that I can picture on his face, having, you know, hit pay dirt and, and, and actually uh, accomplished that. And one more thing on that, sure. you asked about whether they, 
understand that I'm a professional athlete. Well, if we go to Disney World and there's someone in Bill's gear, likely they're going to either remember me from my playing days or see me through the Bill's social media, through the media work. Of course. My kids will be like, why did they ask for a picture with you? I'll be <laughs> like, because I played for the Bills. And they're like, that's, but, but yeah. they don't understand it's a big deal because a lot of our friends played for the Bills. A lot of, you know, they get to meet so many Bills players. Like they don't think it's that big of a deal. Oh, for sure. Well, I, I tell you what, uh, what I love is every single thing we've been talking about, whether it was what you did as a professional athlete or what you've been doing as a professional broadcaster and speaker, all of these principles will apply to your children, regardless of what it is they choose to pursue. You know, I mean, this stuff applies to their academics. If they choose to pursue athletics, if they get into any other activities, if it's their relationships. Uh, and, and that's one of my favorite parts about fatherhood is, is this stuff has such high utility that the things that you and I have learned over our lives, they apply to our, our children. And it, it can actually be a really nice uh, a bonding mechanism for us to be able to use these to share and teach. It is. It truly is. And I love having performance coaches on my podcast and asking them, well, how do you implement your principles with your kids? Like, it, you know, I had Ben Newman on and he talked about, yeah. I let my wife kind of be the bad guy because I don't want them to see me as this motivator who can't be just their loving father. And it's right. that happy balance of, you know, our, our rules with our kids when they go to play sports is I truly don't care how you perform but don't embarrass us. Like right. don't embarrass our family. You listen to your coaches, you have fun and you try your best. Your best may not be as good as somebody else's. Try your best, have fun, listen to your coaches and we'll get ice cream. We'll, you know, whatever. I, I but, love but, you know, there there's times where those don't happen. And then you have to step in like, Hey, we don't, we don't truly act like that. And so we're navigating those. Our kids are still young and I love taking advice from people like yourself and many others, like how you navigate those waters. For sure. Well, the cool part is those three things you just mentioned, they don't apply to only children playing sports. If you and I do those three things consistently, life tends to work out in our favor. I mean, no it's, doubt. people make things way more complicated than they need to be. Give your best effort, be coachable and listen, be a good teammate and have some fun. That will take you to the top in most areas of life. So it's, it's kind of neat to see how sports can come full circle for everything we do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, man, this was so much fun. I enjoyed it immensely. I loved learning from you. I love everything that you've got going on. Uh, I'm an even bigger fan than I was when we first started this. So, so please keep up your great work, man. This was really enjoyable. Yeah, I appreciate it, Alan. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep spreading your message. Keep spreading those unseen hours uh, and all the messaging with that. Uh, I'm proud of you, brother. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for investing your time with us. I hope we helped you raise your game and provided useful insight on how you can maximize the unseen hours. If you found this episode helpful, would you be open-minded to supporting the show? Would you be kind enough to share it with a friend or colleague? Would you take 30 seconds and leave us a rating and review? Those two things help support the show's mission and message more than you realize. And don't ever forget, a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. If I can ever be of service to you or your organization, please visit allensteinjr.com or strongerteam.com for a variety of speaking and coaching resources.